0: our role as we are here is that we send those out there and uh, as Andrew Fuller was for William Carey and and uh, on down the line of those missionaries we have responsibility to man the post here and man it well so that they can do their work there and so I'm thankful to hear those stories i want to add a a prayer request for you guys Um, many of you have probably seen in the news the devastation right now that's going on in india through covid uh one of the men that i've had the privilege of working with for you know 15 years and preached with many times uh, named benjamin 41 years old got covid and passed away in two days and so uh, just received word of that this past week and uh, that country has just been devastated by it and what's amazing right now is that the strand that seems to be going through, strand, strain, whatever, is targeting really 30 to 50-somethings. And uh, if they get it, it's just a matter of days. And so we need to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters there. And just as Jeremy prayed for those many there, uh, uh, India as far as people groups and lostness is one of the darkest countries in the world that desperately needs the gospel, and so we pray that the gospel, as Carl F.H. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time, and so we must um, continue the urgency to take the gospel and do our part in in praying and sending and going and all of those things that God's called us to do tonight. We're going to talk about Genesis chapter 3 and the necessity of the gospel, of course, Uh, indirectly but we're going to turn to uh, this passage and particularly we'll try to go here chapter 3 verses 8 moving on there a little bit. Um, Picking up where we left off last week in Genesis 3 we have the entrance of the serpent. God's creation was at rest or peace and In in chapter 3, verse 1, we have the disturber of the peace who comes in and is after this. He is seeking to break up what God has done, disturb the peace that God has established. And we see that, we saw that last week. And if I can quickly remind you, we saw the anatomy of sin is what I said. But Really in the first sin, in the first rebellion that takes place here in Genesis 1, I mean, excuse me, Genesis 3, we see how every sin kind of operates. Sometimes some of these parts are uh, exaggerated more than others. Sometimes they go quickly. Sometimes it just comes. But sin kind of operates the same way for all of us all the time. And so if we can understand, the desire is for us, hopefully, is if we can understand the anatomy of sin, then in some way we could diagnose the problem before it gets to us or gets to that extent in our own heart, in our own life. And so we saw that first they began to question God's word. Did God really say? They began to question God's word and and put that question into mind. And so sin is going to begin by questioning God's word, questioning what God has said, questioning what God has commanded. And then once they question God's word, they begin to mess with God's word, if you will, add to it. uh, He said, you shall not eat of it and touch it. Remember, the and touch it was added. It's, It's making it even more in their minds oppressive than was before. Not only have you questioned God's word, but you don't really know what God said. You're adding to it and putting more on there, making it feel almost more binding or oppressive. And then After you question God's word and then add to God's word, they begin to replace God's word. They replace God's authority, if you will. Who is in charge? Really, the heart of sin is the idea that we are smarter than God. Remember, we said that last week. I know better for me than he knows for me. I know what's best for for me. He doesn't. So we question God's goodness. We question his goodness in the sense of, Does he really know and and want what's best for me? He's told me not to do this, and by not doing that, I'm not getting some benefit or I'm not flourishing in my life. So he doesn't know what's best for me. We question his goodness in telling us this sin. He's really just trying to hold us back. And not only do we question his goodness, we question his power. I mean, if, if, if you look... I don't think any of us have a problem in here whenever we're standing on the road and we see a, a, a Mack truck coming at about 45 miles an hour, we're probably not going to question the power of that Mack truck to run us over. You know what I'm saying? We're probably not going to question it. We're, we're going to step back and not get in front of it. Well, imagine the idea, really, and this is we'll talk a little bit about the irrationality of sin. The idea is... You will not surely die. In some sense, they're questioning whether or not God can really do something to you he says he can do. God can really accomplish something he said he's going to accomplish. So while we would never question that Mack truck coming down the road, it's got the power to kill us if it runs us over, we question the king of the universe who created us and made us and formed us in his own image that he has the authority and or the right to judge us for something. And so you see the irrationality irrationality in it. Why would you question this? But that's exactly what sin does. I want us to recognize, if we can, not only that that, uh, foolishness of sin, how foolish is it for us to challenge the one true and living God, but also to see that irrationality of it, to see that this just doesn't make sense. And that's what sin is in its essence it is an attack upon who God is, his goodness and his power for us and over us. It is questioning the authority. Remember I said this, I said this back when we were talking about creation. One of the reasons we've seen so many people try to give alternative views of creation is not necessarily because the science doesn't match up. Um, that's that's not necessarily what it is. They they use that as some excuse. They try to do that to, do, to to benefit themselves. But at the heart of removing God from Creator, responsible over the universe and the one who made us, in fact, the heart of that is to step outside of His authority. If we can say that God didn't really create this, that we don't, then we can possibly say that we're not answerable to Him. But If there is a God who made all of this, as we believe there is, of course, if there is a God who made all of this out of nothing, who shaped us into his image, blew his own breath into us, then we have to not only listen to what he says, we have to be obedient to what he says as our authority. As our authority. And so here, sin is denying that position. Denying God his rightful place as our authority in our life. And so we're removing him, and we think we know better. We're smarter. Somebody's going to be in authority over you, right? Somebody is going to... Can it be you? Can it be another? Who is it? Removing God removes any culpability in our minds that we were responsible to him and that his judgment is true. And so sin is at the height, then, of irrationality. And it is devastating. It's devastating. Because look what happens in our passage. Eve eats. You know, she eats. She turns. She hands it to Adam. We talked about that last week. He eats. That's at the end of verse 6. Then, verse 7, it's like rapid fire. Adam, uh, Eve eats. She hands it to her husband. He ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. We see the immediate effects of their sinfulness. We see the immediate effects of their rebellion. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew y'all were waiting on me to say it wrong, weren't you? Some of y'all. Some of y'all were waiting on it. I'm gonna, every time i say the word, I'm gonna make us all say it together so we can we can be in this in one one together the eyes their eyes were open and they saw or they knew that they were naked remember that's how chapter 2 ends they're unashamed about it they're in uh, at peace and at rest and now quickly what this passage tells us is as soon as they sin they become ashamed of their nakedness as soon as they sin they become ashamed of it so here immediately that sin enters in there is guilt right I'm guilty. Y'all know how that works. Y'all, every one of us in this room have experienced the feelings of guilt. When we do something we knew we shouldn't do, accidental or otherwise. When we do something we knew wasn't right and it affects someone else maybe or some other thing. We have this immediate experience of guilt. So it is with Adam and Eve. As soon as they ate, they knew what they did. They were guilty. And not only were they guilty and experienced the emotion or feeling of guilt... Along with it comes shame. Because what do they do? They immediately try to cover up their nakedness. Immediately. They start sewing fig leaves together. And and making designer clothing and other things like that. right? And they're sewing these things together to cover themselves. Why? Because they're ashamed of their nakedness. They are guilty before God. And now they are ashamed. And, And really... How sad is this? I mean, it really is. We read this. We are, and and all of us in this room, thankfully, as I look around, you're all clothed appropriately. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) But the very fact that you are is an effect of sin. And while we're thankful for it now, because it would be shameful. How ashamed would we be if we weren't? How guilt that those feelings come in. And why is that? It's because, because we know that in and of ourselves, in our nakedness alone, we are not appropriate to stand before anybody or anything. We're guilty. We're shameful for what's happened. And that's exactly what happens here in this thing. Now, I want to jump just a second here because we'll come to this hopefully um, next two or three years. The end of chapter 3... He says, right, so so they say, you know, you will surely die. You will not surely die. And Many people have pointed out, well, they didn't surely die. Let's talk about that real quick. Uh, Spiritually, they did. Uh, They walked with the Lord in his presence, and immediately that relationship was broken. We'll talk about that in a second. Spiritually, we see that in Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually, they died. But notice something else. What happens at the end of chapter 3? At the end of chapter 3, something has to die. And the one who kills something first is God himself. So off the bat, we see sacrifice. Death has to take place because sin just happened. And at the end of chapter 3, we already see a substitutionary sacrifice as these animals are killed. And what happens with those animals is the skins are taken and those skins of, of blood sacrifice now cover Adam and Eve so that Adam and Eve can be appropriate. Before God, not inappropriate anymore in their nakedness. And so you see that while we may say death doesn't happen immediately, it does spiritually and it does physically. Only God already demonstrates a little glimpse for us of how he's going to redeem us through a sacrifice that's going to make us appropriate before him. So here you see the immediate effects of sin. And then look at what happens as you continue. Their they, they, uh, eyes are open. They're guilty. They're ashamed before God. They are ashamed, by the way, in front of each other. They're sowing fig, fig leaves to cover themselves, making themselves loincloths. And then the moment they were probably uh, dreading the most... Just like when you do something wrong and you were waiting on your parents to come home. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I remember this vividly. I, I, it's like PTSD a little bit. You got, my dad bought this new tractor. I, I don't know why I'm telling the story, but I remember this feeling, so I'm just going to go with it. It's Wednesday night. Um, I went, I cut the grass. We cut, my, my mom and dad had some property We cut like five acres of grass, groom cut it, you know what I'm saying? And I spent most of my high school career either playing basketball or on a 38-inch riding snapper. (laughs) Five acres, you know what I'm saying? That's all day Friday and Saturday. And so I went off to college, and I spent, I was going off to college for my first two weeks, you know, you spend the first Weekend at college, you don't come home because you're just, oh I'm free, and so I'm off to college, and I come back, and during that time, my dad had to cut the grass. He bought a Kubota tractor <laughs> with a like 79 inch <laughs> deck on it, and could cut that same five acres. It took me two days. He could cut it in, like two and a half hours. <laughs> And so this is a new toy, right? I'm like, wow, look at this thing. So dad's cutting the grass. You know, he had to cut it one time and he went out and spent money. I've been saying that my whole high school career. Well, dad told me don't get close. I'm gonna show my age here a little bit, but I think most of y'all in here appreciate it. Don't get close to the satellite dish. And I'm not talking about direct TV for y'all younger folks. I'm talking this thing that talked to aliens <laughs> deep into the further reaches of outer space. For some reason, my dad was the we had to have this. My dad's San Francisco Giants fan. This story is getting too long. We'll get back to something. My dad's San Francisco Giants fan. The only way he could watch the Giants was by buying a satellite dish. And so me and my brother spent many hours with one of us at the back door, the other one out by the dish. And my dad at the TV going, a little right, a little right. And you just crank it. <laughs> too far, too far, okay. <laughs> Hours. Well, I got on that tractor happy as I could be. And uh, within a minute, the little bar that goes up over my head caught the edge of that satellite dish and pulled the whole thing down. <laughs> I want y'all to know there was no fixing that. You know what I'm saying? You can try to bring out the duct tape if you want to. Dad was going to notice. The, the feelings you have as you are waiting on your father to come home after you just ripped down his one possibility to watch the San Francisco Giants that night are treacherous to maneuver as a 19-year-old, right? And you're trying to figure this out. How am I going to explain this? Could you imagine here That moment, if you can, just try to put yourself in the shoes of Adam. Knowing that the Lord walked with him daily, the scripture says. Knowing what just happened. Knowing that this has gone on. And now you are preparing your response, right? You have it. Set up in your head of what you're going to do now. I love when people tell uh, tell me all the time They've got some questions to ask God y'all know what I'm talking about I want to tell them I want you to know bud that you may not be able to form words when you meet him face to face So don't worry about your questions. Go ahead and drop those in fact I love it in the parable of the, of the wedding feast whenever the ones jump over the wall and they don't have their garments to get in, their ticket to get in, and when they meet the master, what do they do? Nothing. They can't say a word. It says, and they were speechless. Well, that's how it's going to be probably when you meet... The Father, and so exactly here, Adam is working up in his mind what is going to happen when God comes. And just as we see here in Genesis three one, the serpent is in the garden. We see now in Genesis three verse eight, God is in the garden. Two different events here, if you will. We don't know how much time passed, but I can promise you, however long it was, Adam in some way is dealing with the angst of knowing he's got to answer for this. And not only that, maybe in his mind, he's trying to prepare his case, if you will. And so here comes God. But what's interesting to me is that the Lord God comes into the garden and notice what it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. I mentioned this last week, that idea of God walking with someone is used in Genesis especially to speak about the righteousness of a person. So Enoch walked with God and the Lord took him for he was no more. Noah walked with God and he was righteous before him. Abraham walked with God. And so that language. And so here comes God ready to do like he had always done, if you will, to walk with Adam. And Adam's not there. Whatever plan Adam had, I got my defenses ready. I know what I'm going to say. I think I came up with on my end of it my mom's dog ran out in front of the tractor and I had to jerk the thing and it hit that, but that didn't work. So here, (laughs) Adam has what he's going to say. And what happens? He starts diving behind the trees. Because when he's confronted with God, he recognizes there is no defense for what he has done. But I want us to point out a couple things here. Look how God comes into this. He's coming to do what he's always done. God does not change, right? God is coming to walk with Adam. God already knew what happened. He's God. We got that. But God is demonstrating here as he enters into the garden, not as a judge, but as a loving father, if you will, looking for his son. He walks into the garden. God's doing what he's always done. Who's not there? Adam's not there. That's the effects of sin. Sin happens. God hasn't changed. We have. God hasn't become different than he was. We're just not where we should be, right? God is always there, always waiting, always wanting to walk and sit. Yet we are acting and responding in rebellion. And so God is doing what he's always done. And he comes in as a gentle father, if you will, seeking his own son. And instead of coming to his father in repentance, which would have been proper, Adam hides and takes off and thinks he can get away with this maybe thinks that he can dodge or hide behind a tree to get away from the maker of the trees. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Thinks that he can hide for some sense and maybe this judgment will pass. Maybe this moment will pass. But this moment could not pass. Adam is hiding in fear. It's fascinating that the serpent convinced them that if they ate of this tree, they would be like God. But instead, instead of being like God, they're hiding from God because they know they're under his judgment. That's, by the way, how sin works. Sin always overpromises and disastrously underdelivers. Over and over again. It's always going to make you think, this is what's best for me, this is what I need, this is going to give me some fulfillment, this is going to give me some enjoyment, uh, this is going to, to satisfy me in some way. And not only does it not satisfy you, it destroys you. That's what it does. Not only does it not bring you the joy you're longing for, because what we are after is not momentary satisfaction, right? What we're after is not, that's what we think we're after, some sort of instant gratification. Let's get it right now. Let's feel it right now. But really, what we hope for and long for is long-term peace and satisfaction and joy. And sin may give us a momentary fruit. That momentary fruit may taste good to our lips for only a moment, but the effects of it are disastrous. It always overpromises. And it always underdelivers from what it can be. And it underdelivers in a disastrous way. And so here Adam thought if I eat this maybe I can be like God and now instead he can't even confront God. He can't even stand before him. He's diving behind the trees. And look at what God says, "Where are you?" Adam, uh, God calls to Adam first and he says, "Where are you?" "Where are you?" Adam trying to hide. Here the Lord is asking some questions. Uh, the questions or the Lord knows where he, where he is. These are pedagogical, if you will. The Lord is teaching Adam, He's going to, just like any witness if you will, or someone who is guilty, you ask him a few questions. They're going to prove their guilt in their answers. And so here is what happens. That irrationality of sin, the Creator comes. Adam knows He's guilty. Adam hides behind the trees. And the Lord comes in uncovering the deed, if you will, with this interrogation. Rather than judgment, rather than charging against him, the Lord comes in and just asks some questions. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Afraid. Well, the smartest thing Adam did in this, this, this passage, really, to be honest, is hide from the Lord. He knew the judgment the Lord could bring. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so we actually have to fear who God is and what he can do in some sense before we truly understand who we are and what he's done for us. And so here Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Not only was he inappropriate standing there with Eve and making the loincloths and figuring it out, he recognized as the Lord comes in, however nice he designed those fancy loincloths out of leaves, they're not enough to cover him as he stands before God. It's not enough to make him appropriate in God's presence. And so he hides because I was naked. And I didn't want you to see me in my guilt and my shame. And so now he asked two really rhetorical questions because the Lord knows the answer. But he wants Adam in some sense to prove his own guilt. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? These two questions. Where did this come from? How did you get this knowledge? And remember, it goes back to the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? How did you get this knowledge? Who told you this? And directly. Did you break the one command that I gave you? Did you break that one command that I gave you? And so he asked him these two questions. And of course, these two questions prove Adam's guilt. But I'll, You see what Adam does. Now we, we may laugh about this, but what's the first thing Adam does? The woman you gave me, Lord. The blame shifting begins. No one wants to take Credit for their own sinfulness, right? You're trying to get outside of that judgment. You, you, we know that old saying, in order, for, in order for the gospel to really take root, you've got to get somebody lost before you can get them saved. You know what I'm saying? And so you have to get somebody to recognize their own sinfulness and take responsibility for themselves. Well, the first thing Adam does here as he's trying to hide from God is he tries to step out or away from the responsibility. So Adam is asked first. I think that order comes... Rightly Now notice the order of this is the opposite of the order of appearance in the first part of the chapter. You have the serpent talking, the woman, and then Adam enters in. And now as you come to this passage, you have the man, the woman will be addressed, and then the serpent will be addressed in this why is that? I, tru- I, I think what the Lord is doing here is giving that, as we know, the federal headship, if you will, the representative of Adam, and Adam's sin is affecting all of mankind. So we see that in Romans 5. So the Lord addresses Adam first. He addresses Adam first. And remember, we saw last week, Eve was deceived, Adam was not. Adam ate out of rebellion. He took it and he ate. So the Lord addresses Adam and his sin first. Here is what's happening when he says it. He says, He says, uh, The Lord, um, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So Adam immediately bl- uh, blame shifts. And it looks like at first he's ultimately blaming the woman, but who does he really blame? He blames God. It's the woman that you gave to me. Now Y'all may think this makes perfect sense in our head, right? I mean, this is husband and wife relationships 101. Um, just a few verses before, when Adam first sees the gift of his wife, when the Lord gifts him to her, what happens? He starts singing. He's rejoicing. Wow, this is perfect. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It may not be the most romantic saying, but it was what God wanted him to say. It's in the Bible. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's rejoicing at her. She brings him joy in the presence of it. And now just a few verses, what? He's blaming God and saying, why did you bring her into this? Why did you put her into this situation? The gift that we find in chapter 2, verses 22, that good gift there for Adam becomes malicious, if you will. Almost the same as the serpent. Why is she here? She did this to me. She did this to me. Adam's hope here is to shift accountability away from him. By the way, this is... Any of us in this room, you're probably thinking, I've got kids like this or something, you know? But in reality, all of us are like this. We've spent our whole life blame shifting. Anything that may come or anything we may do wrong, we're going to try to find the excuse for it. You know what I'm saying? We're going to try to. So we spend our lives doing this. This is, in some sense, especially fallen human nature, a part of it. And we see it with Adam. He's blame shifting. It's not my fault. I don't want to take accountability for it. I don't want to take responsibility for it. She did it. And so the Lord then turns to her. And this is the first time in scripture the Lord addresses the woman. And so the Lord turns to her. The Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent made me do it. Y'all see how it works? You just keep passing on down. Devil made me do it. And so the serpent made me do it. You don't want to take culpability. You don't want to take responsibility. Why is that? Because deep down we know that culpability and responsibility demands judgment or discipline in some sense. And so you try to avoid those things. And so here, Adam first, then the woman. They keep passing it on down from man to the woman to the serpent. The blame shifting goes. And what happens in this as we see at the end of that verse there, finally when she says, the serpent made me do it, what we see is the completion of this process where sin enters in and rebellion takes place. And God gave one, one simple command. Don't eat of that tree in the midst. You can eat of any tree in the garden you want to. Everything is good for food for you. You eat of any of it, but that one tree... And remember, they were told to work the garden and keep it. So this probationary obedience, if you will, in order for you to be successful at working this place and keeping it as I've called you to do, you simply have to be obedient to me. You be obedient and you will accomplish all that you have been called or made and purposed to do and accomplish. Obedience is going to follow and follow fulfillment, if you will. One promise. One command, if you just simply do this. And when they rebelled against God, now their sense of purpose is lost. Now their sense of duty and responsibility is tainted and lost. And everything they really live for ultimately has been stripped from them. And so, here, in this one place, in this one action, in this one follow up, the result is that the authority of God has. Finally, been undermined. His authority has been undermined. Trickery first did it. The devil deceived the woman. And then, outright willful rebellion with Adam, where God's authority was undermined. Here, we talked about this before. You really see three relationships. You see the relationship between God and man, you see quickly the effects of the relationship, of the sin on that relationship. Adam went from meeting with him in the cool of the day and having fellowship with the Lord there to where he was diving behind trees and trying to pull fig leaves over his private parts. He's running from him, terrified of him. Immediately, immediately you see that relationship is broken. It's broken because of sin. But not only that, you go just as I said. You see the relationship between man and woman is broken because of sin. Where Adam rejoiced at seeing his wife in chapter 2, now he's blaming her. Where Adam was celebrating the gift of God in chapter 2, now he's saying, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you put her in here to do this? That relationship between man and woman is now broken because of sin. The third relationship we'll see here in chapter 3 as well is the relationship between man and earth, human, humankind and earth. Adam was told to work it and keep it. And remember that probationary command. You, you don't eat of that tree and you'll work and keep this garden. So to serve and to work and to keep so that work is not a four-letter word, it is fulfillment. It brings satisfaction. It brings joy to you. You just simply be obedient to me in this one thing, and you'll have fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction and joy. So what you have before you is that you're going to have to eat. God has given us everything that we need to eat, and you can eat of any tree you want to. You can eat of any place. You're going to have to sustain yourself with food. That's how the Lord designed us. And God provided that food for us. And he's good in providing food for us, right? Don't we all love fruit salad? It's not like he made us. It's not like he made us just eat grass like the cows do. He gave us a variety, a wonderful variety of things to eat, and they're good for us. And all of this is for our pleasure, for our joy. You work the earth, and it will produce, and you eat, and you will be satisfied, and you'll be sustained, and you will have joy, right? Your purpose will be seen, but that relationship between man and the earth is broken as well. And instead of working and being satisfied, you're going to fight against the earth your entire life, every single day, the thorns, the thistles, the sweat, the muscle in your back, you're going to fight. And guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to lose because dust you came from and dust you shall return. All of these relationships are lost and broken in some sense because of sin. Every part of it. And now when we look at creation, hopefully even as I'm talking, and I don't have to connect all the dots, but you can look around and see the effects of sin and brokenness everywhere. How it has devastated so many in society. Devastated. The Lord turns then when she says, it's on the serpent. The Lord turns to the serpent. He's addressed Adam, he's addressed Eve, and he'll address them again. You see that now, he's going to turn to the serpent. And in your passage, you'll probably notice, you'll probably notice here of how the, um, in, in my Bible, I use the ESV, many of you have asked, but you'll see how it's, line by line whenever it's telling the story, the narrative. But then it'll, it'll kind of break the lines up when it gets into poetry, if you will. And so you'll see, uh, kind of broken up here, you'll see that the Lord begins to speak. And when he begins to speak here in chapter 3, he speaks this poetic style of the curse that now has come. That now has come because of sin. And so he looks first to the serpent. He looks first to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Many people argue, and, and we've we saw this in Ezekiel and Isaiah, that the serpent may have been the most beautiful creature in the garden. I'm not necessarily sure if that's right or true, because I don't think the Bible is absolutely clear on this. What I do know is, when he looks at the serpent now, the serpent will crawl on its belly and it will eat dirt. That's not a satisfying life. Because of this, curse is going to demonstrate that forever you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dirt. You're never going to be satisfied. And, and whether that we see that in snakes that we see now and we, we understand that now as a sign toward it, but we also see it in Satan himself that Satan will never be satisfied. There's nothing that can happen that can ultimately satisfy him, right? Because Christ destroys him, and Christ wins. And so he is never... Imagine a creature and how bitter you would be if there was no satisfaction in your life in anything whatsoever. Then you've understood that Satan and how he exists. And his one desire is to make everybody else bitter also. And to pull them down with them, so you will eat dust and you will crawl on your belly forever. Then, and I'll end right here tonight, Genesis 3.15. Circle that verse, underline it, however you want to do it. Some of y'all who are really up to date with your phones, you can highlight that thing in there. It's really fancy. Genesis 3.15, I believe, is the thesis of all of Scripture. If you're writing a paper, you got to have your thesis statement. Here's what it's about. You know? Here's what I'm writing about. I believe Genesis 3.15 is the thesis verse of all of Scripture. He says to the serpent, he's speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. In other words, serpent, there's going to come a battle. You have brought, you have disturbed the peace. I'm going to put this to death. I'm going to put you to death. Remember in Romans 16. In Romans 16, what does Paul say? I love this verse, and we'll come back to Genesis 3.15 next week, but... Genesis 3.15 is the first promise in all of Scripture for the coming Messiah. It's the first one. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to crush you. And in Genesis, in Romans 16, Paul says the God of peace, right? He established his peace on the earth. The God of peace will do what? Y'all remember? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. The God of peace isn't that a juxtaposition there that's interesting? Here's the God of peace that's going to go to war, and when he goes to war, he is going to crush his enemy. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. He will soon take the disturber of the peace and put him to death so that he will not be able to disturb his peace anymore. And that God of peace will reestablish his peace. That's what Christ came to do. As far as the curse is found, we sing it every Christmas, y'all, I don't know. Joy to the world. As far as the curse is found, our Savior came to take the great disturber of the peace and crush him so that we can have peace. Undisturbed again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for Christ and for what he's done God, I'm sorry for not only my sin, but our sin as a people. Father, help us not to sin. Help us to pursue after righteousness and holiness, to seek to walk with you every day through the power of your spirit. God, I pray for each and every one of us in this room that our desire would be to acknowledge your position as creator, to acknowledge your right to lead us and be our Lord. That we, Father, would be your people that would follow after you. That we would not try to sidestep our accountability or your authority, but that we would happily live under it knowing, God, knowing that you have established the rule and order of this world, not so we would be oppressed or held back, but so that we can flourish as your people. So help us to know, God, that your word is good, your commands are good, and it is our joy our joy to follow you. Father, thank you for all of this and mostly thank you for Christ who did what we could not do, who crushed the disturber of your peace on our behalf so we can have peace. All for your name and all for your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. My dad. If I remember correctly, he did the worst possible thing he could do. He walked out there, he looked at it, and he went, hmm, and turned around and walked back in. Oh. <laughs> did you have to buy a new one? <laughs> nope, he didn't make me buy a new one. I just knew that I had disappointed Dad. Yeah. yeah, so he's a good dad, though. He loves me still. <laughs> he loves right. me still. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday. Three Baptism Sunday. We're excited. Y'all be here. Be a part of it.